Have we talked about this? The pandemic changed the way we do journey mapping forever. I was there for it, doing customer experience work at New Balance, conducting in-person journey mapping sessions in February 2020, planning for them in April and June of that year, and then, of course, everything changed. We had to switch from in-person to remote or virtual. We had to find new tools. For me, the tool was Miro. That was my salvation, the way to keep journey mapping. Honestly, it was an accident. My UX colleagues at New Balance had turned me on to it for a workshop we did together, and I knew it would work for journey mapping too. For others, it was Mural, PowerPoint, or their journey orchestration software. The tool is less the topic today, and more, I want to discuss what changes about how we do journey mapping. And so, there was no one I wanted to talk to about this more than my LinkedIn colleague, Emily Tolmer. Yes, I mention her name on this podcast a lot, but not in connection to her work on our customer experience team. Emily created the logo for the CX Patterns podcast, and I usually remember to thank her for that at the end of each episode. But her logo design skills are not why I wanted to talk to her. Emily and I have worked together for more than two years now, and she is a super talented experienced designer and someone who I look to all the time for guidance and expertise on journey mapping. We sometimes call her the Miro Queen. Y you know, I probably should have asked her by now if she minds that moniker. Uh, and so she has a lot of insights about how to set up a customer journey mapping effort to be successful in the era of remote or virtual journey mapping. Okay, enough preamble. Let's get to my conversation. Emily Tolmer. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the CX Patterns podcast with Sam Stern from LinkedIn. And I am really excited to be joined by today's guest. Believe it or not, you have heard her name mentioned on literally every single episode of the CX Patterns podcast. That's right. This is the designer of the CX Patterns logo, not really what she's known for, Emily Tolmer, a member of the LinkedIn Experience Design team based in New York. Hi, Emily, and welcome to the CX Patterns podcast. Hi, Sam. Very excited to be here. Uh, fan of the pod. <laughs> excited to talk today. Love it. Love it. First time caller, long time listener, something like that. Great. We're really excited to have you. We could talk about uh, logo design. That's probably a different podcast. Today, we wanted to talk to you about remote journey mapping. I think it's a really interesting topic where there was a temporary in air quotes, which no one listening to this can actually see. So I'm filling them in audibly. But we thought we were going to temporarily switch to remote journey mapping at the start of the pandemic. And that turned into a multi-year thing. And now I would argue it become the way. And you're someone who is at the heart of a lot of the journey mapping and experience design work that we do at LinkedIn. And I'm wondering maybe to start, let's talk about what is different and how do you think about creating a journey mapping project or initiative or integrating journey mapping as a technique into a project when you're going to be doing it remote versus in the old world when you would be doing it in person. Yeah, absolutely. So I think like most things that work with the shift from in-person to remote, the biggest difference uh, I've observed is how we're collaborating with others and planning for that. So the approach to co-creation has shifted so significantly. With in-person journey mapping, everyone's in the same conference room, equipped with Sharpies, Post-it notes, adding to an oversized map on the wall. And then we roll that back up and bring it to your working team and then continue to, to edit. 
And then we see a very different picture. We move to remote collaboration. Everyone's joining from their own office, their own room, using online whiteboarding tools that might be new to them, collaborating over the mic. And then we get to leave those sessions with digitized versions of the map that we can then immediately synthesize, edit, share with teammates and partners that might not have been working in the room. And so in both of those descriptions, we heard pros and cons of both, right? It's much easier to teach someone how to pick up a Sharpie and sticky note than it is to maybe use a new tool that they've never seen. But taking pictures of all the different journey maps on a wall and then typing out everyone's messy handwriting is tedious and delays the time that it takes to share out those maps with partners and get feedback with others that may have not participated. Let's geek out for our audience for a minute. What was your go-to technique in the old days of preserving the post-its on the map? I would, I'll say ours was, we would also bring a roll of clear tape, scotch tape, and do these big, long six-foot strips across the post-it so that they'd stay in place. So when you folded it or rolled it up, they wouldn't all fall off. What was your go-to? Love it. Some makeshift lamination. It's beautiful. We did the classic roll up and carry them all like a newspaper boy and <laughs> bring them back to the room, reapply to the wall, and then a lot of pictures taken and then immediately typing it in if needed. Yeah. No, and I think I remember there was 3M had a mobile app that would theoretically at least take, you would take photos with it or you'd, you'd hold it up to the journey map and it would capture everything digitally. But as you alluded to before, it wasn't a magician, so it couldn't account for people's unreadable handwriting. The other thing you said that I think was really interesting that I want to pick up on is that when the maps were created in a room and then were taken back by the design team or the CX team or whichever team had sponsored and led the mapping, it's not that was literally the end of the involvement of some of those stakeholders, but it was this clear separation. And I think that's a really interesting point you're picking up on there. The way that the collaboration was maybe a little bit more time boxed in the old world and it's much more ongoing now so i wonder how you would if, if that's true if that's fair to say and then how do you think about that in terms of how do you continue to collaborate with those stakeholders over time yeah i absolutely would say that's true and i think that in this new way of working with things being digitized and accessible by so many more people outside of the immediate working team it democratizes the creation of that journey map and invites more people to be involved to share their perspective earlier. And instead of having a journey map being viewed during that initial brain dump creation session and then seeing it maybe one time in progress and then at the end when you're doing that final share out, you're able to have much more frequent touch points, get feedback, iterate on that journey map and refine content in collaboration with those cross-functional partners in a way that you just weren't able to do before. Yeah, no, that's great. And then let's flip this. Another thing that you were saying when I inter interrupted you to talk about tape is that <laughs> the accessibility of having to learn how to use a Sharpie and Post-it, learn using, using casually there, you really have to learn how to use a Sharpie and Post-it, much more accessible. Whereas, as you said, alluding to these tools, things like Miro, Mural, they are user-friendly, and yet it's not something that most of these folks who are your cross-functional partners will have ever used before, potentially. Um, may not have access to, which you'll have to navigate in your organization. 
So how do you think about that in terms of preparation, making sure they have access, making sure that they're comfortable, or even potentially giving them options to not input through Miro or Mural or one of the other um, collaborative tools? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this builds into uh, a bigger point about remote journey mapping of preparing your participants. You have to be a little bit more intentional with the remote journey mapping because you aren't in the room to walk them through what's going on. There's that mentality shift of now we're doing creative work. And I think that's built into seeing this remote whiteboarding tool. It doesn't look like maybe some of the other tools in our toolkit that we typically use. It's less rigid than maybe a PowerPoint deck or Excel doc. So it could be intimidating to learn that tool, even though it is user-friendly, as you said. So something I think about when preparing is building in that time to develop comfort using a tool. As you mentioned, getting access to the tool, making sure that's something that's done before the session, even if it is a, a bigger session maybe having time before to share office hours and and give time for those who like to be a little more prepared to practice and and come ready to perform and make that journey map. Yeah, that's a great point because for some it will be, they'll have that performance anxiety almost, right? Will I even be able to do this or use this? And so giving them a chance to, or an outlet or a form in which to practice beforehand. For some, that is very much appreciated. For others, they'll probably ignore it, but that's fine. Yeah, no, those are great points. When you think about um, journey mapping, you think about involving these stakeholders on an ongoing basis. So we've got that initial setup you talked about, making sure they have access, making sure they have some opportunity to get comfortable using a tool. What is the after the fact? How are you sharing it with them? How are you engaging them on an ongoing basis where they feel like they're collaborating? I would imagine you're managing it's not too much of an expectation. They have to suddenly, they're a member of the CX team and they have to continue to, to input. Or on the other side, that at some point we're able to say, yeah, no more inputs here. We're locking this down. This is not perfect, but we're well past 80 20. How do you think about that balance of being collaborative, staying open to that after the fact, but not either overburdening them or letting them feel like they have too much control or some other issue, concern that I'm not even thinking of to, to watch out for? Yeah, absolutely. I think this problem usually solves itself with people being very busy with their own work and not wanting to get too heavily involved in journey mapping. If there are partners who are eager to be involved, I think there's ways to communicate when it's appropriate to add feedback. Different ways of doing this are maybe sharing a version of the map that's uh, a file you can't edit maybe setting discrete time to meet with them and review feedback and then adding that in together. Either way, I think it's great when partners have enthusiasm to be involved in the journey mapping process and see this as a a positive challenge to deal with. (laughs) And I think that they will honor whenever you have work that's locked down and will lean in those moments where, where you let them. Totally. And I'm glad that you really, you you called me out there. Yeah, we won't necessarily have this problem all the time of them desperately wanting to do more journey mapping. They'll be done. And as you said, it's a good problem if they're continuing to lean in. So embrace it and manage it. I think that's sound advice and I think realistic. Let me manage another assumption, stereotype about journey mapping, which is CX teams do lots of work. All of it is journey mapping. (laughs) And, (laughs) And frankly, we do a lot of journey mapping, but nevertheless, the 
importance of actually making changes to the experience, not just obsessively mapping it like some cartographer or somebody. How do you think about the after action? How do you think about ensuring that the maps become living artifacts? What is your process for ensuring that these transition into things that can guide and assist changes and action? Totally. I think this work actually starts before you even begin mapping of receiving that commitment from your audience that they will take action, that they're ready, they have the resources, and using that as a guide as you're creating your map, making sure that you're keeping those those needs um, in mind and building this tool that they can then use to take action. So that would say that's the first and, and most important part of having a willing audience that's ready to act on the map. Second, I would say tying the map to insights, recommendations, risks, and keeping this in a language that aligns with how they get work done. And we're thinking through this on a project right now, building our map, and then now looking at our recommendations and aligning that with products roadmap. And so thinking about your journey map in context of all of the other resources that you're using to communicate pain points, communicate opportunities, and making sure it's fitting into that toolkit for your audience. Yes, that's a wonderful allusion you're making there to yeah, using video clips from research, using quotes, using other sources of data that may not have come from the research for the journey map, but they give a quantitative context to the qualitative insights or the survey you did for the journey map. Those are all great points because I think it, it is much more powerful if it can also have uh, be in this larger constellation of other ways of persuading, other ways of providing insights uh, and sharing information. So I think that's a great point. Okay, so that makes sense in terms of we talked about journey mapping the process, how it's different in a remote world. You also have trained people to do journey mapping. And you've done this in large scale settings. I think you've done it in person. You've done it remote. You've done it one on one. What would you advise someone who is maybe setting up their first training session or hasn't done it in a while and is now going to have to do it remote? How do you think about training others who are not as well-versed as you are in journey mapping to start to use this technique? Yeah, absolutely. I would say first start with understanding where your learners are, understand their goals, what context they have going into this, and then based off of that, filling in those gaps, right? Do we need foundational understanding of journey mapping? If we already have that, then can we move into practicing? But regardless of where they are, the most important part is making sure that we have time and space for them to do the work, to practice journey mapping, and then have the time to share feedback and then have them repeat that process again. I would say the best way to learn is by doing and receiving that feedback, tweaking, and continuing to learn together and, and not having it be just a one and done moment. Yeah, no, that's great. And you're anticipating my next question a little bit already there with flipping this from the perspective of the teacher to the learner. What are the things to really focus on to make sure you can get up to speed using journey mapping? You already highlighted one, right? Which is ensuring you have a time and a place and a space where you'll actually get to practice and actually get to apply it. I think that's great advice. Are there any other tips for folks who are maybe wanting to get better at journey mapping or pick it up in the first place or brush up on skills in terms of 
gaining proficiency? Yeah, I would say observe the facilitators that you see working in other journey mapping sessions that you're a part of, or even ones that you're not invited to, ask to be invited to observe and see what works well, see what works well for that individual and how you could maybe tweak that for your own personal style and see how different participants are reacting to different facilitation techniques. Observing was how I learned how to journey map and then from shadowing, moving into the the practicing and doing a lot of the practicing and, and being very open-minded to feedback, requesting the feedback, and then putting that in action. Yeah, that's great. And I was going to ask, how did you learn to map journeys? And you just told us you watched others do it. You were learning at the the shoulder of masters and, and then starting to help out, I imagine, with some of the journey mapping activities in a workshop. Is that right? For sure. Yeah, I have a less traditional path to experience design. And so in, in college was mostly self-taught with journey mapping and had practice, but really learned how to do it well at PNC Bank. My team was amazing. So many opportunities for shadowing, observing, them sharing their best practices and techniques and really investing in, in teaching, which I appreciated so much and still do. And then, yeah, like you said, practicing and then leading and continuing to learn every day, learning from you when you're facilitating and continuing to sharpen my practice. Yeah. And you learn yourself as you do it. And I think this is another back to just reiterate that point of make sure you have an opportunity after you learn journey mapping to, to practice it, and to apply it and to do it. You learn so much as you do it. And I think that's such a, it's such a powerful way to learn. Once you've got that course skilled down, you've got the training materials perhaps that you can refer back to. I remember when I learned and this is our, our generational gap here, listeners. Emily learned it in college. When I was in college, it didn't exist yet. It hadn't been invented. <laughs> but when I was learning it, there was, I learned it in a workshop at Forrester that we were putting on for clients that I helped facilitate, even though I didn't know how to do it. I just helped out. It was very much a gopher in that workshop. And then I had the workshop materials and I just poured over them as we were doing subsequent projects to make sure I understood some of the whys behind the techniques and, and the order of things and, and why they all needed to be included and how they all fit together. And so you can study as you do it and, and don't be shy about that, right? That it's an open book <laughs> that in your, your first uh, attempt, I think that's a great way to learn and, and to um, feel like you're not out there without a net, but that you have the support you need to, to make it work. Absolutely. And I think there are a lot of places you can learn even outside of journey mapping sessions. Like a few months ago, I was in a yoga class and <laughs> the way the instructor was directing movements, it was really thoughtful and in a way that made a lot of sense to me for how you could try to prompt someone to think about a problem differently. And so I think there's ways to learn from everywhere and not just in those journey mapping sessions, but where anyone is a good teacher. I love that. I was thinking, I was listening to an interview with Robert Caro earlier today, who wrote the, the biography of Robert Moses, the power broker, and wrote, has written a few books about Lyndon Johnson. And he was talking about, and I think this applies for the research side of journey mapping, but he, to understand Lyndon Johnson, he and his wife literally moved to Texas Hill Country because they had to be there on the ground, living in a little cabin that didn't have electricity. I think they probably gave themselves electricity in the modern age here, but, <laughs> but really to try and get in the mindset of a young Lyndon Johnson to 
understand how he came to be this master of the Senate. And it was just really inspiring to hear that to me, to think about the level of detail and nuance you should be pushing for always in terms of understanding. And I think that applies in journey mapping because what we are talking about is the human behaviors that inform why are they taking these steps? Why do they feel good about them or bad about them? Why do they feel that the next step that we think they're going to take is intuitive or not? And they go a different way. Human nature, human behavior is has so many facets and wrinkles and nuances to it. It's ever-changing, is shaped by context. It's different for different individuals. And so I think that is another good reminder. Push yourself to get to that level of detail and understanding. And I love your call out of the reference to the yoga instructor, just the different ways to think about how you can guide and shape and train and, and help people. And I think that's such a good one, right? That you're having to do something with your body that maybe you haven't done before. That's a very hard thing to tell someone. And this is a way of thinking that someone at your company may not have done before. But being patient, being careful and, and trying different techniques and taking inspiration from wherever you get it, I think it's a great call out. Beautifully said. Um, great. Emily, fantastic to have you on the CX Patterns podcast. Your name is now not just here to reference. Thank you for the logo you created, but also for sharing your wisdom about journey mapping, remote journey mapping, and all of the related tools and methodologies that go around that. Listeners, I've shared some links to some of the resources that Emily was alluding to and that we find useful at LinkedIn on our customer experience team. So hopefully that helps you as well. As you heard Emily say, remote journey mapping enables ongoing collaboration on journey maps. This is possibility and peril. Possibility because you can incorporate more rounds of feedback, feedback from more stakeholders who might weigh in at different points and with different points of view. As Emily said, it democratizes the creation of the journey map. It lowers the bar to getting insights from more places. Peril because it never ends. And at some point, the maps need to be done and shipped and you must be moving on to execution. From possibility and peril to preparation, Emily talked about how the preparation required to get everything ready for remote journey mapping effort is longer. There's more to consider. Access to the tool. Time to practice using the tool. Ensuring access and permissions will work. Honestly, I used to conduct in-person journey mapping workshops all the time, other than the materials list. And having that ready, we didn't ask much of the stakeholders coming to that session. We knew we could figure things out when we were together in person. It's not the same when you're talking about remote journey mapping. So how do you think about when the time is right to lock down the journey map and move forward? Emily emphasized that there are subtle ways to move the feedback along, sharing versions of the map that aren't editable or scheduling a time for one final round of feedback. We also talked about how to ensure that journey maps don't become wall hangings in your office, but rather turn into living artifacts that guide action and changes. Emily highlighted the value of other deliverables, video clips from the research sessions with customers, aligning the research findings and recommendations to a product roadmap, a learning roadmap, whichever stakeholders you are working with, ensuring that how you're delivering findings is in their language, using their go-to methodologies or tools. This is such an important point, and I'll be honest, I only fully grasped its import upon further reflection as I edited our conversation for the podcast. Customer journey mapping is a methodology best understood by CX teams, 
and least understood by your colleagues. Their version of journey mapping is the right tool to use alongside your journey map to translate your findings into their language. Think of a menu written in two languages describing the same dishes but using different languages to do so. We can use a journey map alongside a product roadmap to describe the same issues and propose fixes to those issues. If we take time to make the translation, we are much more likely to persuade our colleagues. Now, that's easy to say, but how do you make the translation when you're translating into a language that maybe isn't your language? It's not as familiar to you as a journey map is. That's where a friendly compatriot, friendly colleague or stakeholder can help you, can make sure that you're getting it just right in the methodology that will be most familiar to the people you want to convince. We also talked about how to learn customer journey mapping or how to get better at doing it. And the key here is do it, apply the skill, find opportunities to map journeys, but do it in a deliberate way. The idea of deliberate practice, practice, then reflect on your performance, review any training materials you have on journey mapping, ask a colleague who's more adept at it than you are for feedback, make it a rich learning environment for yourself. Emily picked up tricks from a yoga instructor, she highlighted. I was taking inspiration from the greatest living biographer, Robert Caro. Cast a wide net when you look for inspiration and ways to learn. That's all for now. I'll be back with a new full-length episode after the holidays, but we'll pop into the feed to share some mini-episodes before the end of the year. In the spirit of the season, if you can share this podcast with someone else, I would be very grateful. Thanks to Emily Tolmer for the logo and today for the wisdom, and thanks to my friends Moon Island for the music. Talk to you soon. Thank you.